Well, please take your Bibles and turn to the last portion of Matthew 28. The last portion of Matthew 28. Matthew 28, and let's begin in verse 16, read down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray together. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful to be gathered as brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. And as we consider the truths before us, Help us to think clearly about our responsibility as believers as we walk in obedience to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing with our series on the topic of church membership this morning. And as we haven't really been for for several weeks now, and so far we've established uh, the fact of church membership, that it existed in the New Testament. And then we uh, moved on from there to unpack uh, in a series of sermons a definition of what church membership is. And uh, does anybody have the definition handy, or can you remember it, uh, that you could could rehearse it for us this morning? We didn't do well on on our scripture memory, but Kristen, go ahead. Okay. A formal relationship between a church and a Christian that consists of three things. Uh, The church's affirmation of the the Christian's gospel profession. The church's promise to oversee the life of discipleship of the believer. And thirdly, the Christian's promise to regularly assemble with and submit to uh, the local church. Did I get it right? Okay, so that's the definition we unpacked in a series of sermons. That was the first block of sermons, okay? Now we've moved into some other aspects related to church membership. And last week we began by asking the question, what is a church? Particularly, what is a local church, as we uh, had our study? And we provided this definition. The local church is an assembly of believers in a particular location, and it's comprised of baptized believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who gather at regularly stated times for the purpose of corporate worship, preaching and teaching, fellowship and prayer, who share in a common faith once delivered to the saints, who have been organized into the offices of overseer and deacon, who observe the two ordinances of baptism and communion, and who carry out the great commission of making and maturing disciples. 
Now, this definition proved helpful for us because, uh, really for several reasons. Number one, it clarified for us that a church is more than just a mere gathering of believers in one place, okay? Just because believers gather does not make them a church. There are other aspects and other characteristics uh, that are important to, to make up a church. Uh, the definition was also helpful because it reminded us that the local church, at its very foundation, is a people who gather, okay? We are a, a gathered people, and, and, and essential to who we are is the regular gathering together. The third aspect or thing that proved helpful about this definition what is, that, is that it reminded us that the church is, first and foremost, a group of people. It's not a building. It's not something we do on Sunday. The church is not the senior pastor, but the body of believers, the members, are what make up the church. And I think thinking along those lines has been helpful for us just as we think about our responsibility in serving in the church to remember that the church is made up of its people. Now, as we continue our study this morning, it is the last line of this definition of a church that we want to consider this morning. So the last line I read in this definition was something like this. The church is an assembly of believers, and the last line is this who carry out the great commission of making and maturing disciples. So in considering this last line, what we're doing there is we are answering the question, what is the mission of the church? And that's our, that's our study this morning. What is the mission of the church? When we talk about mission, we are talking about action. What is the primary action to be of the church? What is she to be doing? Where is she to be focusing her energies and investing her resources? All of these questions get at this question of what is the mission of the church? When we talk about mission, uh, Kevin DeYoung is helpful when he defines it as this. The specific task or purpose that the church is sent into the world to accomplish. And I think that's helpful. As we think about what is the mission of the church, what is the particular task or purpose that the church has sent into the world to accomplish. So in raising the question, the duty falls on me then not only to answer the question from Scripture this morning, but also to convince you that the question matters. I'm not interested in gathering so I can raise questions that are interesting to me, but not to anybody else, and then we just talk about them for a while, then we go our separate ways. But I think this is an important question for us to consider. And it's, in order to consider it, we have to look back to the last hundred years of Christianity and begin with what is often referred to as the fundamentalist modernist controversy of the 1900s. So the last 100 years or so, has brought a lot of confusion as to this particular topic of, of the mission of the church. The late 1800s, there was the rise of theological liberalism in the mainline denominations in America, and the battle was between those who held to historic biblical Christianity, they were known as the fundamentalists, versus those who were redefining the, the essential message of Christianity, and they were known as the modernists. And the modernists were denying doctrines like the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of Scripture, the validity of miracles, uh, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. 
So Christ wasn't the one who bore the wrath of God. Rather, Christ was just the, the great example for us. We're to live how, how he lived. And it's tr- that's true, but that's not the only aspect of Christ that is essential to the Christian message. And the battle really was who would control the, the churches, the mission agencies, the colleges, and the seminaries of, of, of these mainline denominations. And in the end, the, the modernists were the ones who won, and they kept all the furniture, so to speak. And one of the key points of the controversy between fundamentalists and the modernists was this matter of the social gospel. And what likely started out as a good intention on the part of the believers of, of fighting social ills like poverty and and illiteracy led to what we know today and what became historically the, the social gospel, where the church became so enamored with solving the ills of the, of the, of the society that, th- that the task of proclaiming the gospel to sinners and calling them to faith and repentance in Christ was lost entirely. Okay, you probably heard this expression or you've seen the bracelets, what would Jesus do, WWJD. That expression was born out of theological liberalism because they were looking as the mission of the church to to look to see what Jesus did. And he fed the hungry and he healed the sick and that should be the mission of believers. That's what we should do as well. And so WWJD really was was birthed out of this this liberal mindset that this is what believers are to do. They're to, 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 to do social good. And in this, the gospel was lost entirely. And we, we know today there are entire denominations that talk a lot about Jesus. They're entirely interested in social good, but they don't talk at all about the purpose of Jesus' coming was to atone for our sins and redeem us uh, as, a, as a people bought by his blood. So they said Jesus was just a good example. So this was the key or one of the key issues in the fundamentalist modernist battle. And in the two decades to follow this defeat, there arose many within the fundamentalist camp who grew dissatisfied with the militant spirit of fundamentalism, and they desired to create uh, what would be known as a new evangelicalism. Okay, so you had the modernist and the fundamentalist division. And then in the next couple decades, there was this uprising of those within the fundamentalists who wanted to create sort of a, a, new, a new version of fundamentalism. And fundamentalism, they complained, well, really they were concerned about the isolation of fundamentalism. And they complained that, that they seemed to have little concern with the social ills of society and were concerned only with the proclamation of the gospel and the building of the church. But it wasn't just an innocent desire for social impact. There was a a driving discontentment among these new evangelicals that it was their desire for Christianity to appear more credible in the eyes of the modern world, and that motivated a lot of this shift of this new evangelicalism. So during this time, there was a watershed book that came out, and it was called The Uneasy Conscience of the Modern Fundamentalist. And Carl Henry wrote this book and argued that the church's mission should include both the proclamation of the gospel, but also social political concerns as well. He argued that, I say in this book, he helped to set evangelicalism on a course of confusion for the decades to come. So old fundamentalists were already, they're like, we already fought the battle against the social gospel. And now this tendency toward 
social good was rising its ugly head in the church, and it was leading to confusion. So in the decades that followed Henry's book, the evangelical struggled, and evangelical church struggled and continues to struggle to understand her mission. So, for example, there are those who understand, like myself, to say that the, the mission of the church is singular, that it is a spiritual mission of making and maturing disciples, and there are those who say that the mission of the church is, is dual in nature, that it is the mission of both spiritual and social-political. And so the confusion, I would say, continues today as we talk about this idea of the church's mission. It's become quite clear in the last several years as, as our culture continues to decline morally, there seems to be this rising question again, what is the church's responsibility in a morally declining culture? And it seems like that's always the trigger point. When you've got a decline morally in a culture, people are starting to ask this question again, what should the church be doing about this moral decline? And so it's not uncommon to hear believers calling the church to invest in, in social reform in order to, to stem the moral declination of our country. Now the interesting thing that I see in our current landscape today is you've got left-leaning believers. I'm talking about politics. Now, you've got left-leaning believers and you've got right-leaning believers, and they both identify separate, um, separate ills in society and see different ways in which the church is to be invested in these things. So they, they both agree that the church is to have a social-political agenda, but they disagree on what the social political agenda is, and there's a pull in two different directions from the left and the right that the church should be involved in social political matters. And so this sort of adds to a lot of the confusion in terms of what the church's mission is. And I'll just say this, that it never goes well for the gospel when social political matters become the concern of the church. Because we drift from the truth, we drift from the, the, the urgent task of, of making maturing disciples, and we start to head in other directions. Now, there have been various arguments or, or attempts to answer what the church's mission is. And just in the last few decades, there was the, the group, we might ter- t- title them the, the Mission of God people. When they want to understand what the mission of the church is, they go back all the way to the book of Genesis and look at the grand story of Scripture, and they say, well, what's the mission of God? The mission of God is, if you look, he's, he's, he's in the process of making all things new, and we're moving toward a new heaven and a new earth. And so if that's the mission of God, then, then we need to be about the same business, okay? Reconcil- reconciling both spiritual and society and nature of, of moving all things into, into this new heaven and this new earth. Okay, so they would look at the, what is the mission of God and accomplishing the mission of the church. Others would say, well, what was the mission of Jesus? And they would say, well, uh, as the Father sent the Son into the world, so send I you. And they would ask, well, how did Jesus come into the world? And what kind of things did he do? And so the church should be doing the same kinds of things. And so they're confused on the mission of this. Others would say, um, in trying to answer this question of what is the mission of the church, they would say Christ is the king of over every square inch of society. And I think we would agree with that. But then they would say that, so then anything we do to better society is to advance the kingdom, and and the church is doing kingdom work when we make society better. So the problem here is to answer the question 
We're, we're not served well by, by going back to Genesis to answer what the mission of the church is. And we're not served well by looking at Jesus and what he did to answer what the mission of the church was. We're, we're best served in understanding the mission of the church when we look at the teaching of Jesus to the apostles and then answer the question, well, how do the apostles understand Jesus' instructions and what did they do with Jesus' instructions moving forward in the establishment of local churches? This is a lengthy, lengthy introduction this morning. And so with that behind us, hopefully I've convinced you that, that there's, there's a purpose and a reason for answering this particular question. Because if we're confused about the mission of the church, then we'll, we'll find ourselves being pulled in, 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 in numerous directions and, and, and moving in different, uh, different ways to, to, to serve Christ. And, and like I said, it never goes well for the gospel when believers are confused about what their responsibilities are. So let's consider then this question, what is the mission of the church? And as we look at Scripture, I want to see two things. The mission, first of all, I want to see the mission that Christ gave his disciples. That's where we're here in Matthew chapter 28. Okay, so we want to look at the mission that Christ gave his disciples. And then secondly, we want to understand how they understood that mission and what they did with it. Okay, so let's begin, first of all, with the mission here in Matthew chapter 28. The mission of the church is, here we see, to make and mature disciples. So we know this passage in Matthew 28 as the Great Commission. Each gospel has their own version of the Great Commission, probably given more than once by Jesus. But we'll focus on Matthew's account here this morning. Now let's set it up here in verse 16. Uh, It says that they were in Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. So most of Jesus' post-resurrection appearances took place in Jerusalem, but here Jesus gathers this disciple to give them, disciples to give them instructions uh, about their coming task. Jesus begins to give his commission. He starts with a note about the one giving this commission. So notice verse 17. He starts his words by saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus, as the divine Son of God, who has paid the penalty for sin, who has conquered death, who has rose again, and who would soon be seated at the right hand of God, he's the one to whom all authority has been given. He's the one who is giving this command. Now, this is an important point of clarification because as the disciples went out and as they proclaimed salvation in Christ, they would face all manner of opposition. Yet even when they faced opposition, they were continued to speak boldly for Christ because he had commanded them to do so, and he had all authority to command them to do so. So you'll remember in Acts chapter 5 when the Sanhedrin's like, all right, no more speaking about about Christ. Okay, we forbid you to do this. They're like, well, we ought to obey God rather than man. Okay, there's someone who has given us this commission, who has all authority, and we must submit to his authority. We're responsible to him. In addition to the authority aspect, Jesus goes on to say in verse 20 that he promises his abiding presence. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now this is significant because the task of the Great Commission, it was going to be extremely difficult. And all of the apostles would lose their lives for for preaching Christ. And yet as they would go and proclaim and die, they would remember these words from Jesus. I am with you to the end of the age. 
Now, the same promise is for us as well, right? Because the end of the age has not come yet. And as we proclaim Christ, God's presence is still with us as we share him. That's the setting of the Great Commission. But now let's move in then to the Great Commission proper. Okay, the above comments just set the, set the stage for us. But now let's consider, really in four words, going, making, baptizing, and teaching. Okay, going, making, baptizing, and teaching. All these words appear in our text. As we're considering these four, these four points, we should make the note that there's only one command in these verses. Only one command in the Great Commission, and that is the command to make disciples. Okay, that's the task of the Great Commission, and everything else that's said is subordinate to this main command of making disciples. So there's one command, and there's three participles, going, baptizing, and teaching, that describe our making of disciples, but the main command is, is making disciples. Let's look, first look at the word going. It's not wrong for it to be translated as, the, as an imperative, go, because that's, it, it's, it's an appropriate translation. And, and obviously, going is going to be involved. If you're going to make disciples of all the nations, then you're going to have to go in order to make those disciples. But the phrase can also be translated, as you go, make disciples. So in that sense, it, it's, it involves those who go, but it involves those like you and me who are just going about our ordinary lives. We are to be in the process, and involved in the task of making disciples. So whether we're at work, whether we're at home, whether we're at play, it's our duty, our responsibility, to be making and maturing disciples. Remember in Acts chapter 8, right after Stephen is is martyred and the church is scattered because of persecution, what does it say there in Acts chapter 8 verse 4 that as they were scattered they went and they continued to preach and teach about Christ? So as they go, whatever, whatever moved them, in this case it was persecution, they were faithfully proclaiming Christ. The second word we want to consider is this uh, word making, or making disciples. Okay? The meaning of the word make disciples is really this idea of bringing someone into a relationship as a pupil or a learner. Okay? So a disciple is not only a religious term. A disciple is a broader term of bringing someone into a relationship as a learner. In this case, making disciples means making someone a learner or follower of Christ. It's introducing people to Christ in a way that brings them into a relationship with Christ that they become followers of Christ. Now, historically, there's been an error when we've talked about discipleship or becoming a disciple of of Christ. There's been an unfortunate line drawn between being a believer, and being a disciple. So some people would say you, you, you need to follow Christ in faith and you become a believer, and then later on, if you really want to get serious, well, then you become a disciple of Christ, as if discipleship and following Christ is sort of this second option in the Christian life. And this thinking really is damaging And it goes hand in hand with with this cheap grace theology that says you can accept Jesus as Savior, but nothing really changes about your life. Unless you get serious, then you become a disciple. But here we see that the text clearly dispels this notion because to come to faith in Christ is to become a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no distinction between being a believer and being a disciple. 
Okay, to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to come to him in faith. Now notice that making disciples here is a ministry of proclamation. When we speak the news of Christ, we speak the news in order that people would become disciples. You perhaps heard the old saying, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. This sounds good, and I agree that our, our testimony should, should preach Christ in a sense. But the, our gospel is a gospel of, of words. And people come to faith in Christ by hearing the word, and it's through the proclamation of the truth that people come to salvation. What often happens in this sort of lifestyle evangelism of, of preach Christ, use words as necessary, is we never get to the point of actually sharing Christ. We, we try to reflect him in how we, how we live, but because of awkwardness or, or because of something else, we never get to the point where we, we are sharing Christ. And, but I think um, one of the things just that I've, I've noticed in, in my life is, is if, if you don't enter the gospel into the conversation early, as you're developing a relationship, as the relationship grows, it becomes more and more difficult to put the gospel into the relationship. And so what we want to do is that we want to be people who are, yes, preach the gospel with our lives, but we want to be a people of, of proclaiming the gospel of words, calling people to faith and repentance. And this is what happens in, when the church becomes involved social, politically, sociopolitically, is believers spend so much time involved in social action that they never get around to actually proclaiming the message of repentance and faith in Christ. So this is the task of, of making disciples. It's, it's a ministry of proclamation. Two more things he says about it here. He says that we are to be baptizing. Okay? It's a, when, when people follow Christ, they are to, to enter the waters of baptism and to, to demonstrate the, the change that has taken place in their life. This is what we see in, on the day of Pentecost. They were saved, they were baptized, and they were added to the church. And then he goes on in the last phrase here, and he says that we are to be involved in the ministry of teaching is the fourth element, right? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, he says. Well, what this refers to is the maturing process of disciple-making, okay? Evangelism would be the making, and this is now the teaching would be the maturing process of discipleship. We're to be teaching one another and, and discipling one another into maturity in Christ. This happens in a number of ways in the body. It happens here as I teach and preach the Word, it happens as the word is taught in other places, but it also happens one-on-one, where we invest in one another, bring the word to bear in our relationships so that we're all built up into maturity. Okay, so these are the four aspects of, of the mission that Christ gives. Okay, this is the mission, I'm going to say, of the church. As we go through life, we're to be about the task of making and maturing disciples. But there's an additional, element, an additional element that I want to highlight that comes with our second point. Our second point is this. The mission of the church is to make and mature disciples. We saw that already. But the mission of the church is to make and mature disciples in and through the local church. Okay? The mission of the church is to make and mature disciples in and through the local church. Now, Suppose you're reading the Gospels for the first time. You read through Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. 
you saw the commission that, that Christ gives. But you'd never read any other portion of the Bible or you hadn't read past this section. And you would ask yourself this question, well, what happened next? What became of the disciples? What did they do with this commission? Did they ever fulfill this, this quote-unquote great commission? And the answer to this question of what next is the book of Acts. Okay, the book of Acts shows us how the disciples understood the words of Jesus in the Great Commission. They didn't see their mission as being dual in nature of, of both evangelism and social involvement. It was a ministry of proclamation building local churches. And they didn't see themselves as just rogue individuals going out to fulfill their purpose. No, they did this in and through the local church. So as you fast forward to the book of Acts, the apostles, what they did, they, they started telling people about Jesus. And those people became followers of Jesus, and they were baptized, and then they, they were joined into a, a, a local church as they grew up into maturity in Christ. And then those churches started other churches. And in the words of the, in other words, as the commission moved forward, the, the role of the local church was, was central in the Great Commission. When a church reached maturity, it, it sent off missionaries, and guess what they did? Same thing. Tell people about Jesus, baptize them, establish them into local churches. So you can't have a Great Commission without the church playing a central role in the Great Commission. Now, to illustrate this, let's turn to Acts chapter 11. really want to consider Acts chapter 11 through 14 to, to watch this play out before us. Begin in verse 19, and we'll read down to verse 26. And this is one of my favorite churches in the New Testament. Um, and it's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament as it describes what took place in this, in this church. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Okay, so we just referenced that, so you remember that. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Okay. Innocently at this time, but that was, that, was how they were, that was how they were operating. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, this uh, more traditional, uh, suspicious church we could, we could call them, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus and to, and, and to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught them a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Okay, so the, the church is, is, is moving in this passage, right? So the, they're, they're spread about because of persecution. And here we have this new church in, in 
Antioch that comes about because of the proclamation of the gospel. Now watch some of the Great Commission elements that we find here in Acts chapter 11. So the gospel spreads through proclamation. Look at verse 19 when it says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as, as, uh, as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And it says that they were speaking the word. Now the audience wasn't as extent, to the extent that it should have been, but they were speaking the word in this case. In verse 21 we see, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So they're, they're proclaiming the message of Christ just like they were commissioned to do. We also see an element of the Great Commission in verse 21 that the the Lord was with them, right? It says, and the hand of the Lord was with them. Well, where else do we hear those words? I will be with you to the end of the age in in Matthew chapter 28. We see that, that many of them became disciples also in verse 21. It says, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. We see also that a church was established here. You see in verse 26, And when he found Paul, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with what? The church and taught them, taught a great many people. Okay, so a church is established in this context here in verse 26. Now, this church is is now being built up by both Paul and Barnabas. And then what happens is more details about this church move us forward into chapter 13. So skip ahead to chapter 13, and we see something else about the maturity of this church. It says in chapter 13, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was also called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping, okay, this is the church at Antioch, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, For the work to which I have called them, and after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. Well, where did they go? Well, they went to the regions of Galatia. Okay, so here they are, a church that's maturing, and they see their Great Commission responsibility. They send out these missionaries as well to do the same task that has already been taking place in Antioch. What was that task? To preach the gospel to baptize, to make disciples, and to establish them into local churches. So fast forward to the end of chapter 14, and you see this unfolded for us. Look at verse 21. So this is after Paul and Barnabas have been to several cities proclaiming the gospel. Verse 21 says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they turned to Lystra, they returned to Lystra, Anticonium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church. Okay, so they, it says in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel, okay, so they were doing the work of evangelism. It says following that, that in verse 22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, so they're discipling them and building them up in the faith. And then in verse 23, they appoint elders for them in every church. Okay, so this is the task of the Great Commission. This is the mission. It's making and maturing disciples in and through the local church. Now, two implications here. Two implications, and then I'll make some clarifying comments. Given what we've seen so far, these two implications, I think, are are important for us. If, implication one, if this is the mission of the church, then you and I had better be busy 
about the mission of the church. Okay, we don't want to think about it just in, in historical or theological concepts that's disconnected from our everyday life. Okay, Christ could have said a number of things before he ascended into heaven, but what he did say are these words. Get busy telling people about Jesus, discipling them in the faith, and establishing local churches. This is an every-member responsibility. This isn't just a pastoral responsibility. This isn't just a those who feel called as evangelist responsibility. This is the responsibility of you and me. We're to be sharing the gospel with those we, we know and, and building them up in the faith. It is that simple. So this past Wednesday, we had the opportunity to do a Zoom call with Jim and Carol Kanackle, uh, who are now uh, stationed in Utah, as, uh, as church planters, assisting at a church plant, and, and serving among, among Mormons. And it was a great call because they just took the time to tell us about their life there in Utah. And a key aspect of, of, what, of, of their life there is just looking to make contacts and relationships and connect in order that they might share the gospel. And we finished, and I asked our, our group together, I said, okay, what stood out to you about that conversation? And what stood out to me is that what they were doing was not something extraordinary, but it was something that we as ordinary believers should be doing. Living our lives, establishing relationships, and seeking to see people come to Christ. I think for some of us, we need to reorient our lives so that we are on mission. Because the mission's been happening and we're disconnected from the mission. Okay, so the implication of, of considering this topic is if this is the mission, then, then you and I must be on it. We are neighbors that should be on a mission, employees that should be on a mission, dads and moms that should be on a mission, church members that are on a mission of making and maturing disciples. And I think one of the reasons that the question of the mission of the church comes up so frequently is because the church isn't committed enough to it. And if the church as a whole, not just this local church, but local churches around our, our world, would buy into this mission of making and maturing disciples, there would be an increasingly less need for any kind of social involvement because the gospel would have such an impact. Okay, so we must be believers who are on the mission of making and maturing disciples in and through the local church. Implication number two. If this is the mission, making and maturing disciples through the local church, then by implication there are things that are not the mission. There are things with which we have not been tasked as a church. Okay, so as I referenced earlier, this, this faulty view of, of because Jesus is king over every square inch of this world, that then anything we do in this world that advances his, his kingdom is, is the mission of the church. But the old adage goes something like this. If everything is mission, then nothing is mission. But I think what we see in the scriptures is, is Christ has given a very specific task to the church to which we are to devote ourselves as a body of believers. Now, you might be, if I can give a couple clarifications before we finish. Now, you might be listening to this message and thinking, well, is all 
social activity a bad thing? What about things like foster care and homeless ministry, things like Habitat for Humanity? What about these kinds of things? Are these, are these bad things? Well, I want to make a few clarifications. It's helpful, I think, first of all, to distinguish between what the church as an institution is called to do and what indiv- individual believers are called to do or may have opportunity to do. So as I read through scriptures, not every responsibility given to me as a believer or every responsibility given to you as a believer is the same as a responsibility given to the church as an institution. So I'm to love my spouse, I'm to care for my elderly parents, they're not elderly yet, but when the time comes, I'm to care for my elderly parents, okay? Those are individuals given to me and a responsibility given to me. But there are different tasks given to the church as an institution, which the primary focus there is making and maturing disciples. So it's important to distinguish between what I'm to do as a believer and what I'm to do as, as, as being part of the church. Secondly, it's important to distinguish between obligations and opportunities. Okay? It's important to distinguish between obligations and opportunities. So in the course of your Christian life, you may have the opportunity to be involved in some sort of social cause, whether that's foster care or homeless ministry. And we cannot commend these things more highly. They're terrific ministries to, to invest in, okay? But where we need to be careful is not making our particular passion an obligation for everyone else in the church. The scriptures have not demanded that every one of us become foster parents, okay? We cannot press those obligations on the consciences of our, of our members here. If the Lord burdens you so and gives you the opportunity, that is a tremendous thing. We want to be encouraging and supportful uh, and supporting of that. But we can't press on the conscience of every believer here that they should become a foster parent. But there is something we can press on the conscience of every believer here, and that is the responsibility to make and mature disciples in and through the local church. I have no problems pressing that on our consciences because it is a duty found clearly in the scriptures. But when it comes to, to, to social good, well, the Lord may give you opportunity to do some things, and, but they're, they're not obligations for every other believer. Lastly, when a believer has opportunity to invest in a social cause, he or she must do so with the mission as his or her underlying motive. Now, a lot of people don't like this because they say, well, this is... This is ulterior motives in, 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 in loving someone. You're loving them because you have this ulterior motive of seeing them come to Christ. It's like, well, what could be more loving than serving them in order that they might come to Christ? So as you have opportunity to love your neighbor or help them with a task, you're not just simply showing the love of Christ. You're showing the love of Christ, and underneath it is this genuine motive of love that they would come to faith in Christ and follow him in obedience and involvement in the church. Now, I bring this reminder to us this morning because it's in our series on the church and it's, it's important to consider this question. But I think sometimes we've become just a little bit confused. Right? And the more chaos that happens around us, 
uh, in our society, we start to get a little more antsy and a little more involved in, in things that are really going to have no lasting impact. And we forget what our true mission is, the making and maturing of disciples in and through the local church. There's an interesting phrase in our scripture reading of Acts 17 that was easy to overlook, but, but Paul and Silas, they show up on their second missionary journey. They've, they've been proclaiming the gospel, seeing success through Philippi and now through Thessalonica. And they come to Thessalonica, they face immediate opposition to the cause of Christ. And the opposition hears about this, and they tell the leaders of the city, they say this, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, it's possible that what they meant there was an exaggeration in order to get the leaders to, to come on their side and stop these individuals, but, but that's an interesting phrase. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Well, what did Paul and Silas do in order to, quote-unquote, turn the world upside down? Well, they weren't revolutionaries. They weren't changing the, the culture of their day. They were just believers making and maturing disciples in and through the local church. It wasn't a nomination of a political candidate that turned the world upside down for them. It wasn't a government policy that was put in place because of Christian influence that turned the world upside down. It wasn't a, a tweet heard around the world that turned the world upside down. It was just believers on a mission that turned the world upside down. So we have to remember that this is the, the command that God's given us that, that, that has promised to receive success. All right, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so you, brothers and sisters, make and mature disciples in and through the local church, because this is our mission. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're grateful to look in your word, and we hope that what's said this morning is, 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 is true and, and accurate and clear. And Lord, may we take some time to reflect on our own hearts as to the level of involvement in our mission. Perhaps it's easy for us to be distracted by other good things and not be invested in the, the task of making mature disciples. Or maybe sometimes, Lord, we're just lazy. So remind us of our duty this morning and compel us to walk in obedience to you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.